look at poor Jason. He looks like he's half dead. This is not going to be one of those scintillating podcasts. Jason, can you please wake up? I'm I'm awake. Are you going to be interesting? Uh, I mean, oh god. Hi, welcome to Outrageous, our bi-weekly podcast where we talk about race, media, culture, politics, and everything in between. My name is Chris. I'm in New York City, and I'm joined by my very best friends, Trisha in L.A. Hello. And Jason in D.C. Bonsoir. Huh? Okay. <laughs> that was a good start. Sure. Sure, Jason. Hi, everybody. Uh, <laughs> Uh, hello from the never-ending rainstorm here in New York City. Uh, is it a rainstorm? Oh, oh my rainstorm? gosh. Spring in New York is it gets cold and it gets hot. Then it gets cold and it gets hot. Then it gets cold and it's hot. And <laughs> it rains nonstop for two weeks and then it's summer. Mm-hmm. Every yeah. year it does that. Every year. Every year when it's cold in, in March and April, people are like, man, what happened to spring? <laughs> Why is it winter? And I'm like, well, this is spring. Nope. No, it's not. It's not. I get told that. Nope. This isn't spring. Spring is when it's warm. I'm like, no, that's summer. Anyway. <laughs> that's what's going on over here. How are you two? <laughs> Good. That's not what's happening here. It's been quite nice and temperate over here. Well, LA. oh, Southern California. That's what it is. That's what we offer you. That's what we oh. offer you. Good weather and good food. Do you, really. miss, do you miss winter at all? Absolutely not. Maybe coats. Cute coats. That was giving you a moment. <laughs> I, knew, <laughs> I knew it. I knew it. <laughs> coats. I narrowed my eyes because like, really? <laughs> Don't forget, you once called me in a fever from Burlington Coat Factory. <laughs> yes, I know. I love coats. They're so beautiful. And that's the only part of it that I miss is the idea of putting on some really cute coats. It could be quite striking, you know. And then scarves. I love that whole thing. I have a ba- I have a boatload of scarves that I'm just never going to really touch again because I'm never going to go someplace cold unless it's for vacation. And then who's doing that? Who's doing that? Yeah. Don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> so I have to go to Denver in December for a wedding. Oh. I, I First of all, okay. <laughs> first of all. You and weddings and locations. First of all. You're going to plan your destination wedding between Christmas and New Year's? I know how you feel about that. That is extraordinarily aggressive. Like, <laughs> but you're still going. Aggressive. But you're still going. Why are you still going? Oh, we have nothing to do, to do, I guess. What am I supposed to do? But it's like, I was like, you have got, do you not want people to come? Or Yep. That's the ideal. They may not. Yeah. Some people do destination <laughs> weddings for that reason. Exactly. <laughs> Oh, those people we hate, we have to invite them, but they won't come if we do it between Christmas and New Year's. Anyway, my point is, is that this is the first time I've ever, I'm leaving from someplace cold to go someplace cold. That almost never happens. Like for for holidays, when I visit my my family, they're all down south. So it's always like cold to warm. Going from cold to cold, this is going to be new. So I don't even know how to pack for that. Stupid. Stupid. Please don't have your weddings on some like weird... Jason, your wedding was on Pride Weekend. I was very upset about that. I'm what you, was Pride a big issue? I'm just saying, you do like, Pride every year. 
I mean, I do go to Pride every year. It just felt particularly aggressive to have your heterosexual wedding on gay pride. <laughs> That's all I'm saying. Did you not take advantage of the opportunity to go to a Pride parade in D.C. or Baltimore? There are Pride parades other places, you know. I, I know I was too busy there are being gay people outside New York. I was too busy being involved in your extremely heteronormative wedding. <laughs> I had to escort a woman into the room who also happened to be a lesbian who could not sit with her girlfriend. So that was what was going on at Jason's wedding. <laughs> oh my god, Jason, you had a gendered wedding? Well, look, there was a lot of diversity in my wedding. It just wasn't in the realm of sexual orientation, okay? <laughs> You can only handle, you can only give people so much at once, okay? <laughs> white people jumping brooms, oh, yeah, black people right. doing the horror. You just, you can only do so much, all right? There were a lot of queer people on that dais. They were just all glumly not sitting with their partners in dance. So That's weird. That's true. Oh, fun. Jason, what's new in DC? I mean, I, I don't know. I feel you on the temperature stuff. Like, it's really hard to, like, dress kids for school. Like, they're whining, like, it's going to be 70. I should be able to wear shorts. And it's like, yeah, but it's 40 now. Stop arguing with me. But kids don't care. Remember when you were little and you used to jump in the snow? Like, that's supposed to be fun? <laughs> no, no, but there's, like, this peer pressure around if the sun's out, we should be able to wear shorts and a T-shirt. And and there are kids who show up at school when it's 35 degrees in shorts and a T-shirt. It's just like the, like, my friends all go to bed at 1130. Well, that's great. You don't. My friends all have iPhones. That's great. You don't. Oh, your kids are like those poor kids. (laughs) (laughs) Can you say more about that or do you want to leave it there? Those poor kids. Do you you want to leave it there or do you want to expand? (laughs) I actually don't mean poverty kids, but you know those poor kids, you see them, you're like, (laughs) oh, their parents are no fun. (laughs) They're going to be better for it, though. Thank you. Thank you. I'm always like, I'm always like, listen, if you want to go outside in shorts and it's snowing, okay. Darwin had something to say about that. Let's see how oh, that goes. But we see those kids all the time. Have you seen yeah, that? We're those kids in high school. We're like, mm. kids don't get cold though. They don't. So I'm mm. like, I've started, I'm I've it. they I'm may not get cold, but they do get sick. <laughs> and then <laughs> that's and that's an inconvenience on me. Basically, that's why they have to do what you want. Because yeah, right. And if something happens, it's like it's, I'm gonna have to take off work. No, it's it's all nightmare. about me, you know. When I'm frustrated, <laughs> when they're out of bed late at night, it's not because I'm so worried about their sleep. I'm worried about mine. Oh, God, <laughs> so selfish. <laughs> so selfish, Jason. Con- you know, there's conscious parenting. This is self-conscious parenting. Okay? <laughs> I like it though. Okay, I'm um, just being real. It's just real. Yeah. Before you say too much more, that's revealing. That's, <laughs> that's child real. Is called on you. Let's jump into some topics, Jason. Let's talk about overpopulation. Mm. Yeah. So I I've been struck by this. I'm gonna I'm gonna admit something a little embarrassing, which is my. I thought uh, what was before when you said all that shit about. Oh your no! Kids. Oh no! I'm proud of that shit. You may not agree, but I'm proud. Uh, but this, I'm I'm going to admit, but I'm a little embarrassed by. I had the idea for this topic when I was watching a trailer to the upcoming Hobbs and Shaw spinoff of the Fast and Furious franchise. I've never seen any of those movies. I've been warned that my girlfriend's going to drag me to this one because she likes Jason Statham, which I, I like 
him too, but it looks terrible. But anyway, I noticed in the movie, just in the trailer, that Idris Elba, who plays the you know the villain, he has some virus that's supposed to be able to kill half the population, and he's got to get it back. And it just struck me because I was like, you know what? I remember from the Watchmen graphic novel, which Chris, you actually uh, referred me to, mm-hmm. that that's the big you know that's the big conspiracy. There is killing half the population. I just saw Endgame. And we know even from Infinity Wars that that was Thanos' plan was to eliminate half the population, not only of Earth, but of lots of planets in the universe. And finally, it reminds me very different genre, but Inferno, the novel by Dan Brown, which was also made into a film with Tom Hanks, that that movie is about uh, trying to drastically reduce the population. I I can't remember if it's cut it in half or cut it by a third, but it's something very similar. And so it, I just I think it's interesting, and I just wanted to ask you what you think is there that this kind of apocalypse of our generation is at least for these very some of these very popular uh, cultural you know products, it's this like cutting the population in half. Like, what do you think is behind that? Is that actually a fear and obsession, or is that so? I mean, in Inferno, it's presented as a solution to overpopulation. Thanos presents it as a solution, although to a slightly different problem. Like, what do you think is behind all that? I would say that these doomsday situations, these doomsday scenarios, they they exist in ancient texts. The Norse had the concept of Ragnarok, the end of the world where the gods would come and, and fight. There's all sorts of, in the Bible, the flood and all the other stuff. I think every culture develops these doomsday scenarios and we can talk about the the group psychology of why, but I just want to point out that these stories are not new. We have been doing this for thousands of years. Like, oh, everything's going about, we're going about our business. And then one day everything is over. There's some extinction level event and et cetera, et cetera. Why does it appeal to us? I think it appeals to us immediately because one, it's super dramatic, right? <laughs> I mean, you can't escape that. It's super dramatic. It makes for a really great story. But also I think it does begin to touch in this modern era, I think it does begin to touch on some ideas that we have about the planet, uh, whether it be climate change or migration or whatever. I think it, it it touches those fears, which is why I think it resonates with people. It's funny that you said you thought it was actually like dramatic. Did you, say that, did you also say it was interesting? I no, I did not, I did not okay, say good. it was interesting. I'm going to come to that point later. Yeah, I find it brutally uninteresting as a, as a trope. And I don't know why it's so compelling. Well, I will say why I think it's compelling is because it seems so easy, right? It's like a, it's like a refresh. Start over, start over. Like, oops, we've messed this up. Let's yeah. just sweep it all off the Shut table. It down. It's like mm-hmm. clean. It feels like a really clean cut. Although, interestingly enough, right, as you see it, how it gets executed in Endgame, you know, he's like, oh, this didn't work out like I thought it was going to work out. But then I was like, I didn't even think the problem that you had, that this was the solution to it. <laughs> Endgame did kind of uh, Infinity War and Endgame did kind of yada 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 over the problem to get to the solution because if you stop That's if true. you stop in Infinity Wars to think about it you're like no wait a minute but nope the movie's already over I mean can we use this ring for other things but I know is there other other options <laughs> but which I think is actually the biggest problem with the overpopulation trope is that as soon as you go down that road you start to understand that overpopulation isn't intuitively the problem. It's like distribution of resources. It's like where you're focusing your energy. So I always, I'm, I'm always like, oh, why does this continue to compel? But I think we've all done our a bit of our reading, and we find that 
that was an idea that had a lot of weight for a long time, a significant uh, idea. Which part? The what? idea that overpopulation is a problem that needed to be solved and had been actually a problem that people persisted and some scientists still believe is a problem. And that's what was interesting to me when I started doing just a little bit of reading is like, oh, there's some inconsistencies around how people think about a population. So even though people generally say, oh, we don't think it's a problem, it is actually a controversial issue, which is strange because you would think you'd be like overpopulation, yes or no. But that's not even a clear cut answer. <laughs> I, think it, I think the problem is the question. It's like overpopulation is a problem. And if you want to look at it through that lens, I just think you're making a lot of assumptions automatically. Like one, the earth can only hold so many human beings. Any one human being more than that, and that's a problem and people are going to starve. There's going to be widespread famine. There's been a lot of papers around that. But really, if you if you shift the question, because when, when we're concerned about overpopulation, especially in the way that we use it today, as far as like, oh, immigrants are coming in and you know, they're swarming across the borders and we don't have the resources. The problem isn't overpopulation, it's overconsumption. Now, we have enough food in this country to feed a country 1.5 times bigger than this. Yeah. To, to talk about Inferno for a second, I you two didn't read the book or see the movie, have you? Oh, there was a no. movie? I didn't know they made a movie of it. I yeah, yeah. I, I think I heard it. I didn't know it was a book. The Da Vinci Code guy? Yeah, it's 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 in the same series. It's like the same oh, characters. Oh, da Vinci oh. Code was the second book in the series, although it was the first movie made. Inferno is the fourth book in the series, but the third movie made. They didn't make a movie out of the third book. Sounds like Fractions. It's very hard to... <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> well, anyway, go ahead. Uh, wait, yeah. wait, let me finish well, what, my the, point. The wait, thing... wait. I was in oh, no, I'm sorry. I we're tangent I... tonight. Um, I'm gonna make my point really quickly. My point being is that um we have enough food to feed everyone in this country. The idea is that when we ask this overpopulation a problem, what we're really saying is how can we continue to consume as much as we're consuming right now, far more than we need, how can we keep this level up? And the answer is or really you know, what you, you attack that with is like, well, why are we consuming so much? Why are so few people consuming so many resources? That's that's the lens that I look at it through. Like overpopulation isn't a problem. I'm sorry, Jason, go ahead. No, no, I appreciate you saying that. The one thing I'll slide in there is that um, people eating meat is a problem because that really <laughs> adds to our carbon footprint and we would have much more capacity to feed people if everyone was vegetarian. But we'll put that aside for a second. Yeah, we will. <laughs> Chris, like, I will cut it out of the recording. Um, <laughs> but in, in Inferno, what the, the way the arguments made there is they show these like line graphs. And, and this is what I, I mean, I found this compelling that, you know, the population of the planet was pretty steady, almost all of human history until 1800. And then it has like skyrocketed. Yes. And so the assumption in Inferno is like, if it keeps going, if it keeps growing at the rate that it's been growing, um, it's it's just not sustainable. But so the articles you sent, I found really enlightening. And that is where I saw actually, even though, yes, it has been skyrocketing, it is projected to start to level off um, in 50 to 100 years. So that was really enlightening to me. I'm glad that I saw that. And it seems like, okay, maybe it's Maybe it's, you know, not the problem that, uh, that that we thought it was. But I can't understand kind of intuitively why it looks unsustainable, just given, I don't know how long ago it was like, oh, oh my God, China has a billion people. Now it's like, oh, they have 1.7. You know, it does seem like, wow, it's growing really quickly. But I think your point is well taken that actually we we do have the resources if we can consume them in a sustainable way to support, you know, the the people that we have on the planet. 
Well, I'm also curious about what underlies our assumptions beyond just the idea of I want to continue to consume as much as I want to is what are some of the other fears that are embedded in that in that concern about overpopulation? Is it also that we can't change behavior? That it's such a huge public health kind of tension to get people to change their actual behavior in a positive that we actually end up going to the end conclusion, which is we can't change people's behavior. And so we're going to have to, this will inevitably be a problem. No, that's, that's mm-hmm. absolutely it, Tricia. You know, it's, let's say the country was a hundred people, but we eat as, we eat as much food for, as we would for 600 people. Yeah. And then like a hundred more people come in. You're like, well, how can we possibly have enough food? We have to consume six times as much. Like, sorry, just sorry. And the idea that, well, what if we all consumed less? I mean, we see this in all the time when people try to get it. I mean, this whole thing right now with straws, the idea that people like, oh, these paper straws are really fucking soggy. I'm just going to use the plastic straws. <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, you could, you could use the paper straw or better yet, don't, don't use need a straw. A straw. I've stopped using one. straws. That's my solution. I'm like, you know what? I don't need a lid or a straw. Yeah, I don't, you don't need all that often. I can walk across the restaurant with a friggin' <laughs> cup without a lid and not spill. And I can drink out of the cup. I learned that at some point in my life. But, but that's the thing, Trisha. It's like, I don't think it's a fear. I think people just take it as an axiom that, oh, well, we can't change our behavior. Therefore, we are going to run out of resources because we are too busy consuming six times. We're, we're consuming 6X and we can't stop consuming 6X for a variety of, of made up reasons, if you ask me. So sorry, the rest of the world, we're just going to burn slowly and there's nothing we can do about it. And then that gives rise to the trope of like, well, what if half the people died? <laughs> Which really the, more room? <laughs> yeah. Well, the unspoken end of that is the unspoken end of that is, well, what if half the people died? Then we could continue to overconsume. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. That's that's really the only reason why you would need to get rid of half the population. Well, you know, the other thing though, I do like this is a strange question, but it what comes to mind when I think about again these like really big cultural phenomena that seem to be obsessed with this again quote problem is why aren't they obsessed with like the real problem of like the environment collapsing um, and becoming, you know, the world becoming uninhabitable because of our overconsumption, not because of population. And, you know, who knows? And it's a like, what if question, but I do kind of think the thing about these films is that the, the overpopulation thing and like, Oh my God, someone's going to kill half the population. That's an escape, right? Because we don't really see a threat like that out there. (laughs) Whereas if we were actually looking at the collapse of the environment in terms of its ability to sustain human life, like that actually could happen. And we actually could be doing something to solve it. And we're just choosing not to, and no one wants to actually deal with that when they go watch a movie. So that's what Trisha said earlier. And what's what Trisha and I said earlier, like what I said was that one, the trope is much more dramatic Two, like Trisha says, it's a dodge, right? It's a totally simple solution to a very complex problem. People can't handle complexity. I will say that one of the things I thought was noteworthy as I was trying to like get a handle on overpopulation was the idea that like human beings are super flexible and that part of the assumption of um, the overpopulation trope or even mindset is that it's a closed equation. But, you know, but the reality is that humans will create new ways of um, making food that expanded their options. Like I just, I think that elasticity in our adaptive behavior is something I just don't think we often think about. And I think it's related to the idea of even change, right? Changing for the good. 
is that they're actually these whole like swath of swaths of behavior that we've not considered for ourselves as people right. and as communities. Do you know what I mean? Like new thought processes, new ways of conceiving of the world. Like I think about how AOC is trying to, to sell the Green New Deal, right? She did a cartoon PSA where she wanted you to envision what the world would look like. But what she did was she imagined it in the future and then backed up into it. So it was like 20 years out. And she's taking like an express train from Washington, from New York to Washington, D.C. And all these different things are happening around her. And I thought it was really exciting because what she was forcing you to do was to imagine a different end so that you can back into it by having new thoughts. So that, you know, because right now everyone feels really stuck. They feel like there's only like a limited set of actions that they can take. Yeah. And otherwise it's like, what can we do? What can we do? Like you're sort of frozen. Mm-hmm. Um, but then, so I, I was, so I was just, so I don't know. I was just contrasting that to exactly what happened around food production. Like we created, there were new grains, new this, new combinations. Of, and so at some point in time, people thought we would just run out of food, but we created brand new food options um, in this mm-hmm. imaginative way. And so I think to myself, well, that's probably the source of what needs to happen here, but we have a block. We have like a mental block. And they're like sets of ideas that we all hold and we can't get out the, out from under it. And I think the overpopulation one is just a, a big one in people's minds. And I think it continues to be super compelling. And I don't think people want to ever get out of it. Because you'd have to introduce new ways of thinking about it. Not even just the straw thing or, you know, but just a whole like different set of ideas about ourselves and our own capacities. What would we need to do as a society to attack the actual problem, which is overconsumption? Or can we even do that in America? Because I feel like so much of the American experience is about overconsumption. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the question is, can we create a a conceptualization of ourselves that isn't us as a consumer? I think we could, because it's actually an invention in the, if we think about it in post-World War II, right? Was this this idea of the the consumptive self so I think you can't, I mean, we weren't always that way as a society. So I think there's room to imagine us um, approaching our lifestyles in a very different way, right? It's like the idea of um, not going out and buying brand new clothes every year. I mean, you can introduce this whole different way of um, um, this old new, whole new orientation to living. But I think it, I think you'd have to start though. Like you can't, you can't be frozen, <laughs> but you can offer up new examples. So I heard an interesting thing, I don't know, on NPR recently about how clothing stores and not just stores, but like even online clothiers are are having trouble selling to like millennials mm-hmm. because whereas I think folks in our generation, when we started to make money, we may have bought a lot of clothes. People today, like they buy like, you know, they subscribe to things, right? And they subscribe to things that are virtual. And so potentially... It could be, and and also we know, and there are lots of all kinds of implications. This not all of them are positive, but that same generation, a lot of them are moving into cities, and they're not necessarily buying cars. Like they're Ubering a lot more. Like there is a possibility that we're moving into that direction, not necessarily because there's been some big consciousness around it, uh, but just because of the the things that people value, the way you can get things now without having a lot of physical things. It is possible moving in that direction. It also could be that the pendulum swings the other way. The other thing though, and again, this is also like a maybe, but I am, I am struck by, you know, we certainly see 
climate change having a big impact, even on folks who may not have subscribed to the reality of climate change before. So you see these rural areas that are being devastated. Um, and, you know, again, I listen to NPR a lot. I hear these interviews where you have these farmers say, you know, I, this is actually climate change. Like, I don't know what else to call it. I know that my folks in Congress don't, you know, don't buy into there being such a thing. But like, here I am, I'm losing crops. And you see the federal government again and again, having to put forth all this money um, to respond to these disasters, be they wildfires in California, be they, you know, hurricanes, you know, all kinds of things. At some point, that even those who, again, have like resisted the concept of climate change, if, if nothing else, I feel like there's going to be a financial reality that it's just not sustainable to keep responding in these ways. Like we actually have to get ahead of the problem. So I think there's the potential that that's just going to force people to respond, even if they won't admit that there's such a thing as uh, as climate change, like they may still have to pursue the solutions just to save money. Frankly, those are two thoughts that might lead us in the right direction. But again, I don't know that they will. I don't feel very optimistic in the sense. I just don't see, I'm trying to think of a time where people change their behavior on a massive scale. I mean, and like, like, I mean, let's talk about even the environmental movement. I remember my consciousness changing around the environment, around like styrofoam and like litter in a certain way. I mean, it may not be as compelling and as like swift as you would want it to be, but I think it takes, I think there can be some change that happens. I think what you have to do is you have to introduce a vision of something new and create a sense of energy around that vision, which is why I think that's, that's been, that feels like it's been stalled for a lot of people. But I have to say, I feel like this has been a sort of strange moment where I'm looking towards people who have been doing maybe the work for a very long time. Like, for example, like, like criminal justice reform, right? I mean, even as much as I feel like we might have a government that's like going backwards, I feel like we are now more capable of even hearing people who have been a part of that movement for a very long time. Because now it's like the rubber meets the road. And now we're sort of understanding, yeah, we really can't just lock everyone up and we can't just continue to criminalize every single thing. Right. So there comes a space where you're like, hmm. You're right. I, it took me a while to get here, but now I see. Show me what. Show me the other side of this. Show me what you're thinking. I feel like we uh, we could get to a space where we can begin to ask questions just because we are forced to. I mean, we'd want it to be more proactive, but I think we're just going to have to go down that road. Like I feel like that's how our choices get made. We're not, <laughs> we don't take the proactive step, but we've been forced to do it now, right? You made that discussion you had just now very simple because like criminal justice, what I'm thinking and the reason why I'm pessimistic in this conversation is that everything has become so um, polarizing and Mm -hmm. um, political. So even the question like, oh, even the fact we can't continue to lock everybody up automatically gives rise to the point of view. Actually, we can um, (laughs) because that point of view will get eyeballs. It will get clicks, et cetera, et cetera. But it's, I mean, that construction and that the selling of that point of view creates that point of view. Do you know what I mean? It's a snake eating its own tail. But it creates another room, right? It's like, for example, I never thought one idea that just came is the idea of um, prisoners voting. I never thought about that. Somebody asked that as a question and, and you know, a couple of the Democratic candidates responded. And I was like, wait a minute. Suddenly my mind was open. I was like, wait a minute. Should they be allowed to vote? Why aren't they allowed to vote? How does that even make sense? And here goes this road. So just like you say that sometimes a negative 
a consequence might be opening up your mind to something that is probably that is problematic. I think the reverse can also happen. Like if you frame the question correctly, you can be forced to go down roads that you haven't gone down, right? Which is how could we, how can we consume less? What could we do differently? Like we could ask those things in a, because we've just been taking it for granted though. Yeah. Well, I, I, I still think, and this is, I, I know Chris accused me of saying this a lot. So I'm <laughs> sorry if I'm getting boring, but even in the examples you gave Trisha, and I think they're right on, but in both of those cases, it became in the self-interest of certain powerful groups to mm. pursue those things. So, you know, the Koch brothers who are, you know, very much against taxes and big government were like, wow, we're spending a lot of money to lock all these people up. I don't want to mm. pay taxes to lock people up. Like let's not lock so many people up. The democratic party was like, wow, we've got, you know, a lot of felons who likely would be democratic voters if they could vote. Like let's go get them the right to vote. And notwithstanding what you said is right. There have always been advocates and champions for these things, but like when they really gain momentum is when some powerful group sees it as in their interest. And that's why I still think when it comes to consumption, I'm guessing until powerful people see it as very much in their interest to to reduce it, we we may not have a lot of opening for exactly. I mean, everything again you said is right on, like opening the space to think about it differently. But it, I think it does take some powerful people to say, "Oh, it's actually in our interest to, to open up that space." Because I think we often introduce the Overton window in the in the horrific direction. <laughs> Whenever the Overton window is opening, it's always <laughs> opening to the side. Like, hmm, are Nazis good people? Yeah. Should, we, should we rounding people up? Like, and again, uh, if you don't, the Overton window is put simply, it's the uh, the boundaries of what we agree is acceptable discourse in public and in politics. But let's go back to the let's go back to the initial point you make, Jason, which is that this is storytelling. I think this comes back to us asking again: Can we have new stories? Can we talk about the world in a different way? Can we open the public's yeah. imagination in a different way? And I mean, listen, I mean, I hate to blame it on them, but these all, all these are white guy stories. And, you know, I, maybe white guys have just a very dark vision of the world. <laughs> and a vision where they um, were control. Because I actually think overpopulation is also about control, right? Mm-hmm. It's like, I yeah. see a group of people yep. that I don't know what to do with and mm-hmm. I want to eliminate them from my life. I want, I think about, I think about it. I see parallels with, um, you know, populations from the suburbs moving into cities and being sort of annoyed at people in the cities. You know what I mean? And it's like, how do we have less people in the cities, please? Do you know? So it's like, there is this kind of like desire to get rid of the messiness of life. And I think that that is partially due to a very sort of male orientation to life, right? The complexity of, complexities of life is too much. How do I streamline this story? How do I tell this story in just this one uncomplicated way? I imagine if we had maybe more female stories or more women-based stories, we, we would maybe complicate the narrative. And I cannot imagine a woman going and like, let's eliminate 50% of the population. I just, like, it just, <laughs> like, I just, like, I've never heard of Marie Le Pen, maybe. Maybe, right? <laughs> <laughs> it just, it's such a, I don't know, it just feels like such a, it's just a stark, disturbing, silly kind of short-sighted Well, way. to your point, I mean, I think to your point, I mean, if we're going to gender and racialize this, I, I would have to agree, like this idea that, oh, the only way to solve this problem is to just d- burn and destroy 
feels super Eurocentric to me. Like a little <laughs> bit, right? And, and then it's, it's, not just, it's again, you know, I say that not to tear down the Europeans and their oh. culture and raise them everywhere else. It's just that, like, you know, there have been in the course of human history in the different corners of the globe, they've tackled me, if not this issue, similar issues when it comes to lack of resources. And, you know, some of them do go that way. The Aztecs, you know, <laughs> there, was, there was limited resources. Then suddenly the gods wanted human sacrifice. A lot of it. Like that was, but then you look in uh, places like Australia and parts of Africa and that's, that's not the way that they went. They went a different way. So, but it does feel kind of Eurocentric to be like, well, the only solution will be to kill everyone. It's just such a weird trope, but I, I mean, and we've seen it. Oh my God. We've seen it played out in life. I, and, why do we continue to revisit it in there? In and full the circle, Trisha, board? it's boring, right? <laughs> full circle. <laughs> and on that note, let's move on to uh, the next thing I want to talk about, which I'm really exciting. Trisha, can you tell us what Lizzo has been up to? <laughs> Now, listen, I don't know Lizzo from a hole in the wall. Sorry, I'm about to reveal that. Her music's great. I'm really bad at pop music. Let me just let you know that right now. Trisha is a nerd, and Trisha really only knows musicians from a certain generation. And if she hears something brand new, she's like, what is that? I'm talking about myself in third person. But Lizzo came on the on my radar because um, apparently um, a, music, a musician, a, mu- a musical reporter... Report um gave her uh I think uh I think what was a kind of even well measured review of her album, but she took offense to some of the things that he wrote and took to the Twitter byways to critique this this reviewer. And then within the next, I think the course of another couple of days, another um celebrity did the same thing around um uh, an SNL skit, and then another individual was critiquing um, a review of the clothing that they that an actress wore, and the actor took to the you know took to Twitter and launched an essay objecting to this critique of her clothing. And so I started wondering about the role of the critic because I imagined myself as a critic in another life. I used to do film reviews, and so. But that was when social media was not all the rage. And I think the critic always assumed, I thought at that point in time, that they were in some sense very far away from the creator. They were actually talking to the audience about <laughs> the thing they're critiquing, not the person doing the creating. And, and so I think social media has brought the critic in close proximity to the artist. And I think it's really raised questions about what is the value of the critic then? And should an artist take what a critic say seriously? Should they even engage the critic at all? And so I just wanted to pose the question to you all. Like, what do you think the role of a critic is, should be? And um, what did you think of these um, artists pushing back at the critic, at their various critics? I want to expand your question a little bit to mm-hmm. also, because this is also Lizzo's problem. Who is the critic? Yeah. One of the things that Lizzo was saying was like, if you've never recorded music, then don't talk to me about my music, which seems weird. Some people found extremely, it. yeah, people found that ex- <laughs> like an extremely limited point of view. Like who's running around know? recording music regularly? <laughs> <laughs> if you're recording music, you probably don't have time to critique it, but that's like, what is the role yeah. of a critic? Jason, what, what is the think? role of a critic? Well, it's a great question, and it's kind of an age-old question. You know, I think back to, I think, 17th century Alexander Pope, who has this 
an essay on criticism where he's kind of criticizing his critics. And he asks this very question, like, what's the role of the critic? And so I think there's always this tension. What's fascinating about the time we're in, and I think one of the articles, Tricia, that you sent us spoke to this, is that we have this kind of democratization of voices. Yeah. And so people are on Twitter and you could be someone who you may not have any credentials as a critic. You may, maybe you do, but like the point is you write something, it comes to the attention of the artist and the artist can immediately and publicly respond in 140 characters or less, whatever. And it's just like this, it's just such a different, the, the media we use, the social media provides such a different kind of rhythm and exposure. Um, and, and, you know, this cuts both ways because on the one hand, you you have people, again, who can provide their critiques of, of media and they may not, they don't have the credentials of a professional critic, at least the, what those credentials would have been historically. We could say that's bad or good, but that's a fact. So it's just, it's, the dynamics now are are so interesting. And then other people, you know, have made the argument that I think it was Lizzo who said like, well, people who do that should be unemployed. And then some of the responses were like, well, people who write criticism these days don't make any money anyway. Like, what are you saying? You're there making a lot of money and you're trying to like take a little bit of money away from, you know, these people who are simply, as you said, Trisha giving kind of even keel criticism. So I, you know, I'll wrap up by saying an answer to your question. Like I find people who write reviews, I find those reviews helpful. They do help me learn about artists and learn about things that are coming out. They can, they can influence whether I'm going to dedicate time or money to something, you know, I I take it with a grain of salt, but I I find those things helpful. The last thing I'll say though, is I do think we're living in an age where, and certainly we could look at the president who says this and demonstrates this, where it's like pushing back is always a benefit, very different level, very different situations. But I've had my interactions with the press and that kind of thing. And you know, I'm definitely of the mind often, like I'll advise people, like usually don't bother responding. Like it's probably not in your interest, but for people who are really in the public eye and make their living by being in the public eye, um, it seems like it's always in their interest to bash other people because they can, they whip up attention. Now there are more and more things written about them and their diehard fans get mobilized by that. So, you know, it's annoying to me that Lizzo and I think Ariana Grande and others like are kind of bashing these people that don't have a lot of power and are just kind of doing their thing. But I see it as in their interest. It's like, it's more publicity for them. You're describing an environment though, right? You're describing the social media environment, which allows all that stuff to happen. Right. Yeah. I'm really interested in what Lizzo raises as far as like, who are these people criticizing me anyway? And coming back to what you raised about, you know, not having the credentials of a critic, like who gets to be a critic, you know? And I think, I think where Lizzo is misguided, if you don't make music, you can't critique music. Well, making music and understanding music are two different skill sets. Sure. Yep. You know, and Lizzo um, comes from a, a long line of people like her who are doing similar music because she is young, because she's so busy being so, a creative genius. She may not even understand the um, tradition which she's coming out of. So that's for people who are have their eye on that, who maybe learn it in that way to reflect to the public Mm -hmm. what they know about those traditions. I find what Lizzo, Ariana Grande, Olivia Munn, and everyone else is doing around these, around getting, you know, bashed with air quotes. I think what they're missing is that point, is that if you believe that you are putting art out there, then it must be critiqued to really enter the social conversation. 
But you see, that's a, I think they don't even agree with that because for them, the brave thing is the putting out of the art. Whether it is good or bad is not something that they want you to ask because for them, what I think, and this is why I don't really find it even particularly interesting to talk about the artist because in my mind, the critique is really for the listener and the audience. And that's really between audience members, really. That's and, and the audience should stay out of it if you but don't yeah, agree. Exactly. That's my thing. Clearly I mean, you don't agree. Clearly you don't think your stuff is shit. Great. <laughs> you know what I mean? and, yeah, exactly. I mean, in a weird way, you know, this is the downside to me of having access to the actual creator of the yeah. product. Because yep. I actually don't. I don't want to talk to you. It's so funny because people are always like, oh my God, you get to talk to the artist. And da-da. I was like, you know what? The artist has done its, his or her job. Right. And now it's our turn to play with it, to have fun with it and do what we want with it. Or to not and, do those things. Or to not, right? Or to not do it. But it's really for us to play. Like the artist that inter- interrupts that and, and like intervenes in that process, to me, it's like step away. You've done your job already. But I feel like they want to control all aspects of your experience of the thing that they have created. And in some ways, I feel like that's why you've gotten this pushback. But to your point, though, Chris, about this idea of like, there's a whole sea of people who came before you, and I'm just trying to provide context to the work that Mm -hmm. you're doing. That I think is very valid. Um, But I think for the artists themselves, I think that they think the creative process is its own reward to some degree, and they don't want you to critique the product because you haven't taken the risk of the creative process for them. This is, right? this That's is, what, a, this is what happens in a generation where everyone gets a trophy. You know what I mean, though? Like everything you do is valuable. Yeah. For them, the participation in the in the creative act is what they judge as the most valuable. As you can see from what from the side of sly slide digs that are being made at the critic, right? It's like, are you out here doing this? No, I'm not. I'm actually out here writing about it to tell my friends whether they should waste their money and buy your album. And that's my value. (laughs) So so can I say, I mean, I generally agree with everything you're saying. I do want to kind of extend something I said before, which is from the artist's point of view, and this will be weird to say, because I recognize the artists we're talking about are very successful. So um, I'm being very generous to them with what I'm about to say. But we are also in an age where more than ever, artists have to self-promote. You don't have lots of people listening to the radio um, and there be, there are people investing in like with the age of Spotify and these subscriptions and that kind of thing. I mean, you see, we have a situation now where artists they're not automatically going to get make a lot of money, even if a lot of people listen to their music. Like they really have to kind of elbow their way to the front. And so I can again see why, notwithstanding everything you said, which I think is valid, why it's in their interest to push back and to utilize the criticism as an opportunity to get more publicity. I do think artists are now in a position where they they have to constantly self-promote if they want to stay relevant, if they want to make money. And so shitting mm-hmm. on the critics is like an opportunity to do that. So you're talking about the media environment. That yeah. These which, people is themselves in, which is, yeah. which is, I think we should transition to having that conversation. Cause it, it's kind of hard in 2019 to not talk about that. I think we're all in agreed like criticism. It's its own line of study as it were. Like yes. it's not easy to be a critic. Now, as we shift into talking about social media, what one of you said earlier, I'm sorry. One of you said this earlier is that now, Everyone has a voice and everyone has a platform. And so everyone is taking to the 
to the ways and byways, as Trisha put it, to express their opinions about every little thing. Um, and it creates such a tremendous amount of noise. Not all of that is what I would say is like journalistic critique, though. It's just noise. And to your point, the artist's adding more noise to the noise. Like, I get it. What's the value of any of that? I mean, it's just Well, that. I think the value is what Jason's saying. But I think that's separate from the process we're talking about. I think in, in your mind, Jason, it's a very conscious process that the artist is engaging in to use critique to therefore blow up even more information about themselves, right? It's It becomes like a like a blowhorn, right? To say, oh, you've now critiqued me. Let me attack you. And then by attacking you, I've now gotten this other space where it's it's another way for me to catch capture your attention. That's attention getting. I mean, right. that's fine because that works within this media space. Right. But I think we can take ourselves away from that part and say that there is still room, obviously. I think we've all agreed to that, that there is a role for the critic the yes. serious critic who is praising the artist's work within the context of what they're doing and what has come before them and what might come yet in the future and to say whether it is good compared to what has come before them. I think those are all fair things to do. Yes. Whether you then use your power and your platform to attack someone who is simply having um, a conversation about something you've placed in the world it seems weird to me. Like I always, I always remember Anne Rice when someone wanted to ask her about Interview with a Vampire and she wanted to control every aspect of that. And then I think it was, it was a comic book writer, Alan Moore, I think he Alan said, that's Moore, not my, what, yeah, right. He's like, I don't own those characters anymore. Like what you do with them is what you want to do. I already wrote my characters in the story I wanted them to be in. But I always contrasted that with Anne Rice, who was like, I need to have complete control over how this person shows up in a movie because she felt like she owned that entire product. And so I guess in some ways, maybe some artists go down that road. They want to control all aspects of your experience of them. Which is tricky. <laughs> I guess to marry the two conversations we're having is the question, what is the role of the critic in this current social media environment? Does it does criticism make sense in this environment where, I mean, this is a bit of an oversimplification, but does it make sense in an environment where everyone can speak at the same volume? The the critic, the artist, the you know, the public. Does any of that make sense? Is any of that valuable? I think it's very valuable. I think, you know, what Trisha was saying and what you were saying, Chris, I totally agree with all the value that it adds. So I think it is valuable. I think, unfortunately, in the current media environment, it's easy for it to get drowned out and it's easy for all manner of criticism to end up on an equal playing field when not all criticism is equal. Some of it is thought out and looking at history and putting things in context. And some of it is Jennifer Lawrence is a bitch. Exactly. I'm going to curse out. I'm going to curse out celebrities and try to get, you know, try to get retweets. I mean, I think that's what it is. I mean, I, I actually think it's more valuable now than ever. I think it's, I mean, and I don't, but I, you know, but then there's this other part of it. This is another part that we haven't talked about. It's a little bit along the lines of the question that Lizzo asked, but it's, um, it's the critique that's really around maybe a, a particular gaze that's always been valued. There could be this opportunity where you could say that there had always been a kind of gatekeeping function of certain critics to say what was good music and what wasn't good music, right? And I feel like there's a kind of egalitarian approach now 
where more people have a platform to talk about the richness of certain musical genre or whatever genre of whatever artistic expression is there. And there could be, there could be artists that chafe at that, right? Because they could say, well, who are you to be a gatekeeper? Who are you to to define this for us? I I see where you're going with that. And I agree. And I I do feel like, I feel like we have that today, which is a good thing. I just think we have so much of it (laughs) that I'm not certain it's still a good thing. So (laughs) while you're saying, yeah, it's totally worthwhile. Like if a new piece of theater comes out that talks about queer issues or Mm -hmm. a book about like, like the black female experience or et cetera. And whereas that thing would not get, it wouldn't get its full due mm-hmm. in like the critic sphere. Now we have all these other alternate voices who are like, actually, this is why this is important, mm-hmm. et, cetera, et cetera. Again, that remains in the tradition of what critics have always done, right? We've just expanded that. So to me, like if we're talking about journalistic criticism from alternate voices, that's great. But then the slide into the general public and yeah. like Egghead28 on Twitter, who's <laughs> You know, just posting like, Endgame sucked, Iron Man rule. You know, what to do with that? I don't, that's what I'm asking. Is that worthwhile? You know, you, you, no, it no, cancel social media, like you used to say. Cancel you know, it. You know I'm not a fan of social media because I feel like it, it raises these questions and I don't like any of the answers that we can give. But, you know, I don't know if it's valuable that everyone has a voice. And to Jason's point, the fact that the Ooh. artist would lower themselves and that's my that's those are my words the fact that the artists would lower themselves to argue with like critics and egghead 28 on twitter i'm just like aren't you busy doing your freaking art (laughs) shouldn't that be your focus but it's like you said like people want to control every aspect of your experience like i wrote this album and i think it's my best so you should think it's my best too well bitch leave that to me I have to say that I cannot believe that we ended up in a conversation where the democratizing nature of a thing is up for critique. Well, (laughs) when you put it like that, you know, these, these are tough. These are tough issues. I, I agree. I mean, uh, we could talk all day about this, but like, you know, what, what, what that makes me think of, Again, I don't mean to take us a different direction, but it's interesting to me that the word populism is like a bad word, but yep. it is like, it's like, oh, populist movements around the world, you know, terrible, right? Like it's always leads to something bad. And it's like, oh, you know, Brexit, they gave it, they gave a referendum to the common people and look what they did. They destroyed, you know, the European Union. I don't know what to do with it. It's like, a, it's a, it's a, it's like an existential problem. Like, I don't know what to do, with it, but it is true that it seems like when, as things get democratized, like bad shit happens. I don't know what to do with it. Well, you I know? mean, listen, democratization without education is poor period. Right. Well, that's what you end up democratic. having. Like that's that all those people were in some sense manipulated by lack of information, lack of access to quality choices. Right. And actually it's so funny. Some, I was listening to a podcast and someone said that, that there's always the illusion that more choice is better. And it's actually not, right? Yeah. You know, if your choice options are good choice options, then that's best. But in a landscape where you have, you know, a breakfast sandwich, 
um, <laughs> milk toast and, you know, a packet of ketchup. Those are not really choices, even though it seems like a democracy of choices, right? Yeah. Not, they're not real ones. <laughs> but then you get to the problem of who gets to decide which choices you have. And if we're not, no, no one feels good about giving anyone that authority. So everybody gets to put their choice on the table. It's funny you say about like, here we are now arguing against the democratization of things. You know, I was I went back and listened to the podcast that we did also about Marvel movies, about the idea of like saviors, and we got into some Joseph Campbell stuff, like how a lot of these superhero movies have like again simple solutions to problems, and those solutions are usually like one person who's a genius and rich mm-hmm. and solving <laughs> everybody else. And, I, and in that hello, podcast, the I, president, hello, hello. So in that podcast, I made the point, like, you know, you very rarely see a, um, a an origin story of about a, a group of people who decide who's going to get the powers and that how that person is is beholden to the populace. Um, and in that podcast, I made it sound like, oh, that would be a really interesting story. But now, <laughs> flash forward to today, when I'm like, <laughs> if you give too many people a handle on things, it gets out of control. And I'm like, I'm with you, Jason. I I think there is there is a balance there on the seesaw. There is a balance. I, I think it's important to recognize that we can't have every person in a society with their hand on the steering wheel. Like we can't do that. But that doesn't mean that we should give up on that ideal, right? We just have to figure out a way to make that happen. And they tried that in ancient Greece and Rome with republics. Like that's right. how that came, you know, um, and, you know, that has its upsides and its downsides. And I think we're just trying to find that balance. But I think when it comes to criticism and the internet and what we're talking about, I would say the seesaw has gone too far in the other direction. Um, and one last point I want to make on this about artists responding to this, you know, there was a time when people, artists didn't make these kinds of comments about. Yeah. And I remember when I was young, how startling it was for Madonna, like a prayer, like a virgin era Madonna. I remember how startling it was for her to go on the media and bash her critics. I I just never seen that before. It, it, now it's so commonplace. But I, I remember there was a time when artists were like, no, I'm going to do my thing and whatever. There were fewer outlets to be sure. But there wasn't this feedback loop to the artists themselves. I I think at some point in time, we have to have a conversation. I don't know enough about how this falls down, but I think in some ways this is reminiscent of some conversations that are happening online with um, uh, young adult writers and some of the the critiques of their work and how that ends up um, leading to some books not getting published and certain kinds of things. So... And so that that could feel like, you know, the room has been overrun by critical voices and the writer hasn't didn't have the freedom to do what they want to do. But I don't think that that's where they land on that issue. I think there's some real serious question about how do you how do you um, make sure that the landscape of work is truly thoughtful, respectful Part of that, I mean, part of this is a different, if a different conversation, we can get into it later, but it's really this question of like some white young adult writers writing about people of color in inappropriate and strange ways. Um, and, and so I feel like that's another part of the critic angle where people are like, no, you can't write about this community in this way. This is not okay. 
That's fine, um, though. That kind of criticism is fine. That's what we're talking about. Like, that's appropriate. Yeah, but I mean, you know, it's interesting because I, I think there, there are lots of writers who feel really uncomfortable with that. They feel like they can't, they can't exercise their right to write whatever they want to write. Because communities you now can have- write. I know. Exactly. <laughs> you write you whatever want. you want. I don't have to read it. People, <laughs> listen, for millennia, people producing all sorts of art. Right. Yep. And I would say like 97% of it has fallen in the, the trash bin of history yeah. because it wasn't valuable. It wasn't worthwhile. It didn't get people excited. So if you are a white person and you're like, I want to write about inner city black people and I live in Peoria, go nuts. <laughs> go nuts. <laughs> people talk about you. And, you know, I mean, look at uh, the freaking Stonewall movie from a couple of years back. Yeah, that was horrific. Right? Where he was like white people, cis straight, cis straight acting gay white guys started the Stonewall Rebellion. Sure, he wrote that, and everyone said mm, no. And <laughs> within two or three years, we'll forget that movie even happened. So that's what happens. So go nuts, everyone! Like, it's important. That's why crit- critics are important because we get to decide in this back and forth process like what enters the cultural and social lexicon based and, on history know, though based on, based on a real awareness of what happened i mean for stonewall sure but also like you know but i think stonewall makes the point mm-hmm. because ultimately that artist felt comfortable putting whatever he wanted out there and it was really the responsibility of the community to say, no, that's inaccurate. That's an inaccurate portrait of what really went down. And the reason why I know it is because I have sense of, a sense of history and I'm going to tell you. And so in the, if you imagine the same scenario with the artist, it's like, no, you're not inventing this new genre of music. It has existed before. <laughs> there have been other people who tried it and have ascended in places where you didn't. And you have also done something brand new, too. So I, I kind of like that idea. You know, I think it's important that, and I don't want to use Lizzo because I think Lizzo is really brilliant, right? But there have been artists who in their time might have been polarizing and would have not gotten the kind of attention they got if not for some people, journalists, like holding up their work as important. And I Mm -hmm. can't think of anyone right now. Like, I want to think about Michael Jackson at, at back in the early eighties, but that was really about MTV and their racism it really wasn't about the quality of his work, but like, um, I think black artists doing rock and roll and many of those were dismissed actually outright. Maybe that's it. I need more time to think about that, but it's to your point is that like, I think that there are some communities who will step up and be like, no, this is important because it has a place in this moment in time, mm-hmm. you know, which is different, but yeah, but valuable too. Uh, all right, everyone, let's move into media recommendations, which is something that you've seen, heard, read, or experienced that you think other people should see, hear, read, or experience. Someone pointed out to me that I never go first, so I'm going to go first. Go first. Uh, uh, hold on to your goddamn hats, because this is Game of Thrones related. Uh, oh, <laughs> let's hear it. <laughs> I'm going to recommend Jonathan Van Ness, who is a comedian slash hairdresser who uh, came to fame on Funny or Die, and he would do this weekly cl- show called Gay of Thrones, <laughs> which it, it oh. would be him reviewing Game of Thrones, the last episode, with a celebrity guest. Like They can see this, that he's doing this person's hair. And Jonathan is so fabulously femme and unabashedly queer and fucking hilarious. 
I don't watch Game of Thrones, but I watch Game of Thrones. I don't know what the fuck he's talking about, but it is hilarious. Jonathan Van Ness is also one fifth of the Fab Five on Queer Eye, so you can see oh. him there. Yeah, and he also has a great podcast called Getting Curious with Jonathan Van Ness, where he sits down with an expert in something and just talks to him about talks to the person about that. Um, he has this guy who does Middle Eastern history who always comes on to talk about what's going on in Iraq and Iran. And I've learned so much. But I just recommend everything Jonathan Van Ness does because I think he's so funny. And on top of that, he's super, super gay. And I love it. <laughs> Do you know that, not surprisingly, Gay of Thrones comes up in my YouTube feed, but I've never watched it. So now oh. I feel really motivated to watch it. You should watch it. I mean, you would probably find it way more funny than I yeah. do. He has like little nicknames for everybody. Like J- J- he calls this one person Jared. Let himself go. Like and like, <laughs> no volume. Carol Brady. I don't know who these people are, but I, it's just a great, it's just a great nickname. <laughs> the, the blonde girl. He calls her Christina Aguilera. Um, he calls like the little short guy Mayor Pete. It's I don't know. I don't know. It's all so funny. So check it out, <laughs> Jason. What's your thing? You know, I've been really debating what to recommend. I was thinking about doing an anti-recommendation because I saw Ugly Dolls over the weekend and it was awful. And I really don't like when you assemble so many talented people and make a bad movie. But but after this conversation, actually what I want to recommend. So I heard um, on Sunday, Studio 360, which is a program that airs on NPR, surprise, surprise. They did an episode, and I think it's just part one of an episode of about 2001 A Space Odyssey, the movie when it came out. And I didn't know this, but they they quoted all of the reviews of it when it first came out, and the critics hated it, like hated it. And then the next day, in spite of that, they 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 were telling the story of like Stanley Kubrick that night. They they had like a premiere, they had like a party planned, but everyone hated the movie, and so like it was awful. Stanley Kubrick was like really bad, like really unhappy and nervous and that kind of thing. Didn't sleep. But then the next day, crowds were just lining up to see it. And now it's like people consider it this just monumental film, but the critics hated it. So anyway, it was a good story anyway. And it's relevant, obviously, to the conversation we had today. What's really surprising about that movie, what you just said, is that 2001 A Space Odyssey is actually trash. (laughs) (laughs) But sometimes something that's really, really bad can find its place in people's hearts. When I I saw it a long time ago, I found it really really boring. But now I want to oh. go back and see it again. After no, it's as boring as you remember. <laughs> Tom Hanks had seen it more than two hundred times. Why? <laughs> the number of people who are like very well respected in film who say that this was the movie that like changed their life, etc. It's a lot. So I don't know, Chris. Maybe you're just not. Maybe you and it I might, didn't didn't get it. it. Might be a Citizen Kane moment. I mean, talk about someone who's polarizing. We were just talking about this. Kubrick is someone who's really polarizing. Yeah, he's horrible yeah. for me. Oof, I find you it know, like, I don't get it. But I again, maybe if I understood the sweep of film history, maybe I understand his place in it. His a Clockwork Orange was interesting to me because the source material is interesting. But every other movie I've seen by him, oh, <laughs> I I mean, although I do find his his movies kind of boring, and you and I have argued about this before, Chris. I I do think The Shining is a pretty powerful movie, and I also think Eyes Wide Shut, which I know you hated, but I actually found that to be compelling. Christian, didn't we see Eyes Wide Shut together and we couldn't stop laughing? We couldn't stop laughing. It's horrendous. (laughs) 
and every scene, every scene got more and more ridiculous as it went on. And we're when just got to the party scene with the masks. We were fully doubled over in our seats. Did we leave? Because we were laughing so much. Like it was so terrible. It was horrendous. I, I thought it was good. Okay, enjoy that. Trisha, what was your recommendation? <laughs> so um uh, my recommendation is Fast Color. It is going to be very difficult for you to find it. It came out maybe a month ago. And it's about three generations of African-American women with superpowers. The, the movie had such poor distribution, partially because white men who really are in control of that space just could not envision how to sell the movie. They didn't know who the audience would be for it. And so they simply dropped it in theaters and like abandoned it, moved it around. I mean, just did a horrific job at marketing the movie. And what's so interesting about it is... <laughs> I saw it right after Endgame, right? And it's about the same people, right? It's about superheroes. And it is such a human movie. Because the one thing about those movies is that they traffic in a space where it becomes unbelievable after a while. But this movie, even the the way it's shot, the choices the director makes, it is really about the people having superpower. It is not about the superpower. And so when you're watching them deal with it, you can imagine yourself having the superpower, which is not something that you, I think you can readily do in superhero movies. And so, you know, the idea of a, a Black woman with superpowers, you could imagine, what should she do with that? Would she hide? Would she make sure people know about it? I mean, it really is super affecting. And so <laughs> it is the best superhero movie I saw this year. And it's just really emotional, really evo- involving, and it's all Black women in it. And it's just... It's really effective. So if you can find it, I would um, I would try to find it when it comes out on video. I think it might be showing at like in, in urban centers, maybe one or two theaters if you're lucky. But it's really rewarding to see it. You know, it makes my I, eyes roll into the back of my head when I'm like, they didn't know how to market the movie. There's a like, there, kidding me. It's like, I mean, fucking Dog's Journey Two is coming out. You know, it was it was interesting. Um, I happened to go to a screening. I went to the screening with the producer and the actress. So all great actresses. And the young girl is amazing. So it's a young girl, her mother, and her grandmother. They all have superpowers. It's really good. And so what's so fast, so I went to the... um, I went to this, this screening accidentally. Just went, found out about it, went to it, and it turned out that the producers were going to be there. And so the producers... She's hilarious, this white woman. She's like, listen, I was in the room. They love the movie. They love it. They read it. The guys go... So, anyway, these could be white women. You know what I mean? It's just like, oh my god, start like, you know, and 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 I don't know if you know, but just an adjacent story to this, like, you know, one of the producers of um, Crazy Rich Asian said that one studio he took it to wanted Rachel, the lead, who's Asian American, and that's the the major plot point, wanted Mm. her to be white. (laughs) That (laughs) takes the entire heart and soul out of it. White supremacy, ladies and gentlemen. You know it doesn't I mean? so, even have to make sense anymore. It's it just, you're like, how can this censor white people? <laughs> so, so anyway, I think she, she just makes the point that, you know, you're trying. And so it comes back to our earlier point when we were saying about storytelling and how impossible it is to introduce new ideas into the landscape. Because mm. these guys are like, we don't really know who would want to see a movie about three generations of Black women who have superpowers. <laughs> yeah, I can't figure that out. I, I, just, I just can't figure it out. It's 
it's one like, for the agents. <laughs> no, it's like when I think Tyler Perry said when he was first trying to sell his movies to to studios, and they were like, "Well, you're selling to like people who go to church, but black people who go to church don't go to movies." And he was like, "You know what? I'm going to start my own studio." And like now, he's like, you know, a billionaire. I would love to have seen the reaction to his face in that meeting. Just looking at, like, do you keep a stone face when they say that? Or do you, do your eyes, are you like that white guy in the meme blinking? Like, <laughs> so, so it's just to bring us back around to the point that there are stories out there. It's just who controls the gate, right? <laughs> Everyone go out and see that movie. See if you can um, find it. And if you can't, I believe it will have a second life because the producer says that if you like the story, she will tell you in a couple of weeks that you'll be able to continue with that world. So that'd be great. Yeah. Cool. Be absolutely. Good job. Yeah. Good job. Those are some fun. I'm going to go look up some of these uh, recommendations this time around. Yeah. I, um, you know what your thing reminded me of? This is not a recommendation. Now we're just chatting, waiting for the show to end everybody. Sorry. <laughs> there was a graphic novel that had come out uh, and I, I, I will not say the author's name cause I, I don't want to butcher it. His first name is Kwanzaa. But he is a, a a black writer, and he had came up with this world where it's it starts with this black kid in a hoodie getting like shot up by the police, and he discovers that he is part of a sect of black people who have superpowers. Because in this world, only black people can develop superpowers, and so just it's a look at race and racism in America. And now the sequel, so that's called Black. Um, the sequel is oh, called, called White, right? It's called White when white people three years later find out that black people have superpowers and what happens next. Oh, uh, I, I haven't read it. That on screen. I haven't read it, but I really want to. I think that I, I'm just curious what his voice is on this and what his perspective is. I think that might be really interesting. So who knows? Maybe that will be a recommendation sometime in the future. Fun. Uh, and there it is, America. We're done. Um, Trisha, I will be seeing you in San Francisco. Oh, look at that. Yeah. What's taking you to San Francisco? What's taking you both to San Francisco? Well, I, I, I need to visit all my West Coast people. So actually, people are converging in San Francisco. Nice. It's it's just easier for me uh, rather than me to go Seattle to San Francisco to LA. Last time, we famously went to San Francisco together and was yeah. chased down the street by a horde of homeless people. people. Mm -hmm. We should have brunch in the same neighborhood and get chased again. (laughs) Yes, I suspect the problem will be even worse, like a full Walking Dead situation. Mm -hmm. But it's going to be great. Jason, you're missing out. Yeah. Um, We'll find another time to rendezvous. Yeah, we certainly will. You got to ditch those kids. (laughs) Seriously, it's really really messing with our lifestyle. They are a big inconvenience. I can't argue. I mean, imagine how I feel. Um... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and on that note, everyone, good night. Bye. Bye. Bye.